The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. It is great to see you. We are glad that you're here. And I want to say welcome to First Baptist Church Pelham. I've been practicing that all week long. We are so delighted that you're here. We know it's not by accident that you've come today. You've come on purpose and for a purpose because I'm convinced that God has a word for you. And so we are just elated that you have chosen to worship our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this place. Um, May God be praised. I'm going to ask for Don to come and give us some announcements and uh, lead us in prayer. So Don, you come and we'll listen gladly. What on earth are we doing? That's the question that we're going to tackle over the next six weeks. Our answer will reveal our purpose and convey our values. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. History will prove that no people group ever rises above its religion. No religion is ever greater than its understanding of God. Therefore, the most significant fact about any person is not what he or she may say or do, but the most significant fact about any person is what that individual perceives God to be like. So today, we begin the conversation with a significant question. What is God like? Fortunately for us, we do not have to ponder the characteristics of God as if God has left it up to our speculation. From the very word of God, God reveals himself clearly. He shows his identity of who he is, who we are, and how we may be able to enter into a permanent relationship with him both now and forevermore. And perhaps there's no better passage that attempts to describe the indescribable better than Psalm 139. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Psalm 139. For those who uh, are able to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word, please do so as we read Psalm 139 in its entirety, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 24. Psalm 139, let's begin at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. For when I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me into the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Psalm 139 consists of four stanzas. Each of the four stanzas has six verses. So in the opening stanza, David, who is our author, communicates that God is omniscient. The word omniscient is a religious term. It simply means that God knows everything. Once again, it was A.W. Tozer who said that God knows everything about everything. There's not one thing that God knows any better than any other thing because he knows everything equally well. God has nothing to learn. He knows all there is to know about brain surgery, rocket science, global economics. God never has to study in order to ace the ACT, the SAT, the GRE, or the bar exam. And our God knows everything there is to know about art and music and philosophy and sports. For our God is a better artist than Picasso. He is a more accomplished musician than Beethoven. He's a deeper thinker than Aristotle. And King Jesus could play circles around LeBron James on the basketball court. God knows everything about everything. It's one thing for us to affirm the omniscience of God on a cosmic scope. It's another thing for us to affirm the omniscience of God at a personal level. God not only knows everything about everything, but God knows everything about everything when it comes to you and me. That's how David begins. You have searched me and you know me. The Hebrew word search is a beautiful word. It means to dig deeply into a mind, to explore a land to investigate a legal case. It's a word that conjures up a meticulous, detailed investigation. And David says, this is the depth of knowledge that God has about me. You have searched me and you know me. He explains it. You know when I sit and when I rise. You know my going out and my lying down. Before a thought crosses the screen of my mind, you know it from afar. Before a word is on my lips, you know it. There is nothing that God doesn't know about you. Now, for David, this is an aha moment, but it quickly becomes an uh uh-oh moment. Have you ever had those? Those aha moments that quickly become uh uh-oh moments. Keep in mind who's writing the psalm. It's David. David is a good guy. But let's just be honest, David was guilty of lust and lying and adultery. 
he was an accomplice to murder. Let's just be real frank this morning that David, while he's a good guy of the Old Testament, he does some rather idiotic things. And when David understands that this God is omniscient, that he knows everything about everything. It's an aha moment, but then it's an uh uh-oh moment because God knows everything about you. Aha. God knows everything about you. Uh Uh-oh. And I can well imagine the conversation that God has with David and David has with God. When this finally sinks into him, David begins the conversation. He says, God, did you know The lust that was in my eyes when I stared at Bathsheba as she was bathing. And God must have responded, not only did I see the lust in your eyes, but I also saw the lust in your heart. Uh Uh-oh. God, did you know everything that happened in this palatial bedroom that night? And the Lord said, David, I know everything that took place. I know every selfish, sinful, sexual, erotic act that took place that night. Uh Uh-oh. But God, did you know how I called her husband Uriah from the battlefield? I tried to get him sloppy drunk so he would stumble and stagger down the street in that inebriated state, hoping that he would spend the night with his wife so that nine months later when the bouncing baby came along, nobody would wonder who the daddy might be. Did you know about that, God? And God said, yes, David, I even knew the number of wine bottles that you and Uriah would consume that night. Uh Uh-oh. But God, Did you know about how I got so frustrated at Uriah because he was a better soldier than I was? He refused to go into the home of his wife. And so I penned a letter. I gave it to him to give to General Joab, his commanding officer. And in that letter, I stated that Uriah was to be placed in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. And then when the enemy were to attack, everyone were to pull back so Uriah would be struck dead. And I signed it and I sealed it with my insignia ring. God, did you know that? And God says to David, David, I even knew the pen which you would choose to write the death warrant for Uriah. Uh-oh. Oh, God, you know everything about me. You have searched me and you know me. I think what the Lord ultimately said to David was, I know you exhaustively, yet I still love you eternally. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, in that first stanza, David says of the Lord, you hemmed me in behind and before. Your hand is upon me. What God did to David, what God does to us, is what you and I do to a valuable object. We hem it in. We place it in a protective case. We hem it in behind and before. We put a protective case around it. We set it on our shelf. Why? Because it's of value and of worth. And God said to David, I know you exhaustively, yet I still value you because I love you eternally. I'll never forget the day that I realized that there is nothing I can do to make God love me any more than he already does. God knows me, yet he still loves me. If you and I understood really how much God knows about us, it would probably make us fearful. 
There are many people in the church and in our culture who, if they really knew just how much God knows about them, they would try to indict God on infringing on their privacy rights. People try to take God to court and say, God, you're infringing on my rights. You know too much. Yet God says, I know you intimately. I know you exhaustively. Yet I love you eternally. And David says, this knowledge is too much for me. It's too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Once again, can we be very transparent this morning? If you and I knew everything about one another, we would probably lose respect for each other. If you knew the twisted thoughts of the person to your right and to your left, if you knew the deviant deeds of the person in front of you or behind you, you would probably lose some respect for that person. You may not even acknowledge that you know the person, and you may say, I'm not going to vacation with you anymore. I mean, if we really knew each other, we would probably lower our love for each other, yet God knows us exhaustively, and he loves us eternally. If David had just penned one stanza, that would have been enough. But he says, not only is God omniscient, but in the second stanza, he says, God is omnipresent. That's verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The implied answer is nowhere. I can't go anywhere where God is not. We call this God's omnipresence. That's a religious term that simply means that all of God is everywhere. Now, when we speak about how we can't help but bump into God, we're not saying that God is everywhere just because he's fat. We're not saying that God is obese or large. We're not saying that God is just overweight. He's as big as the world. Therefore, he's everywhere in the world. No, when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying that all of God is all places at all times. All of God is here, all of God is there. All of God is up there, all of God is down here. All of God is across the street, all of God is across the world. We just heard testimony that we sent missionaries to the devil's playground and to his backyard and spoke to Muslim believers and 55 of them gave their heart to Christ. There ain't nowhere where God is not. And David says God is omnipresent. He is up and he is down. For if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, that's the word sheol, which it also could be understood as hell. Even if I go to the depths of hell, you are there. In other words, what he's saying is that there's no jurisdiction where God does not have prerogative. There's no place where God is out of bounds. He's up and he's down. Now, we understand that God is in heaven. We preach that. We believe that. But I'm here to tell you that God is also ruling and reigning in hell. Because David says that God's presence is up and down. For those of you who question, say, Pastor, how do you know that God is in hell? Well, his righteous wrath is being poured out upon unregenerate, unrepentant sinners, both now and forevermore. That same wrath that should be poured out against us, but was poured out against Jesus the Christ. So if we are in Christ, we can say with the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What did Jesus do for us? Jesus took our hell. Jesus took our place. So God has rule and reign in the heavens and in hell. And every place in between. David says that God's omnipresence is not only up and down, but it's also to the east and to the west. In other words, you can't outrun him. For if I 
wake up and rise on the wings of the dawn. And if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, I'll bump into you. Even there, your hand will guide me. Oh, my friends, you cannot outrun this great, awesome, sovereign God. There's no one in the Bible who is a better poster child for an attempt to outrun God than Jonah. Jonah was told of the Lord, I need you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't like Nineveh. I've never been to Nineveh. They're my enemies. I hate them. I'm not going. There's no way. You can't make me. And so he went south to a city called Joppa. He boarded a boat and set sail to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He thought he could outrun God. He thought he could outmaneuver the Messiah. And yet the Lord still had jurisdiction over the Mediterranean Sea, for it was God who caused the storm to rise up, causing the pagan sailors to quake in their boots, and they cast lots. Lots fell on Jonah. They went down into the hull of the boat. They woke Jonah up, and Jonah convinced them, if you throw me overboard, then the storm will stop. And eventually they threw Jonah overboard, and the storm stopped. And God commanded a great fish to swallow Jonah. If you read Jonah's story, there is a spiraling downward of disobedience all throughout the story. He goes down to Joppa. He boards a boat. He gets into the bottom of the boat and falls asleep. He's thrown into the depths of the ocean. He sinks to the bottom of the ocean. He is swallowed by a large fish. He's found in the smelly belly of that fish. It is downward, 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 downward in disobedience. And eventually, God gets his attention. And Jonah says in so many words, okay, Lord, I will go where you want me to go. I'll speak to you want me to speak to. I'll do exactly what you want me to do. And God says, that's great. Now, we just got to get you out of this fish. And God says, the way I see it, there are only two exit routes. Jonah, you can go north, or big boy, you can go south. Which one is it? And Jonah must have sat there and thought to himself, now, I'm not really keen on being vomited out of this fish, but I've seen what this fish has been eating, and I don't want to travel through the bowels of the intestines of this animal, so I don't want to go south. So, Lord, allow me to be vomited out. So God commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. And the word of God came to Jonah a second time, and Jonah obeyed. You know why he obeyed? Because he realized you cannot outrun God. There are some people this morning, and you're here today, and you're running. I know you're seated, but you're running. You're running from God, running because of fear, running because of failure, running because of disappointment, running because of disobedience. I want you to know that God is the lovingly, heavenly hound of the heavens, and he comes and pursues you. You cannot outrun God. But not only can you not outrun him, but you can't even hide from him. Did you hear what David said in that second stanza? Not only can I not outrun you, but I can't even hide for when I hide in darkness, darkness is even light to you. Once again, Adam and Eve, they were disobedient to the Lord. And in that darkness of sin and despair, they tried to hide. The Lord walked in the cool of the morning in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord said, Adam, where are you? This was not a question for God. This was a question for Adam. God did not ask it because God did not know where Adam was. He asked it so that Adam would know where Adam was. Adam, where are you? I am hiding 
because I am naked. Who told you you were naked? Uh oh. What Adam and Eve learned that day is that you cannot hide from God. There are many people today not only are running from God, but they're trying to hide from God. They're trying to mask themselves. They're trying to cover up and be uh, something that they're not. And yet the Lord says, I know you exhaustively, yet I still love you eternally. And I want you to know I am omnipresent, which means you can't outrun me and you can't hide from me. And this would have been enough. But David continues with the third stanza, which is found in verses 13 to 18, where he says of God that God is omnipresent omnipotent, which is a great church word that simply means that God has all power. And what David does for us is he gives us a biblical ultrasound. This third stanza, verses 13 to 18, is nothing more than a biblical ultrasound. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. When no one else was watching, God was watching. Contrary to what your siblings told you, you were not found under a rock. The stork did not deliver you on the front porch, and aliens did not drop you from outer space. You were made in the womb of your mama, and while no one else could see you, God could see you. David says, I was fearfully and wonderfully made, for God's works are wonderful. I know that full well. For David to say that he is fearfully and wonderfully made, it's not a statement of arrogance, it's a statement of accuracy. It's not for him to say that he's somehow brash. No, he's being biblical. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. I look out to this congregation and you are the showroom of God. You are beautiful. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Not because you can fit into a size four. Not because you have bulging biceps. But simply because you are a creation of God. Ever since our daughter has been a little girl, my wife and I have tried to tell her, Molly Grace, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And even to this day, if you were to ask her, why are you beautiful? Her response would be, because God made me. That's why you're beautiful. That's why you're fearfully and wonderfully made. From the moment of conception, the moment the cell began to unite and divide, there was growth and there was life. I can't help but to think when I come to this passage about the useless slaughtering of living life that takes place on the streets of America at the tune of 1.3 million abortions on an annual basis. 1.3 million abortions are performed. The vast majority of them are simply out of convenience. And there's a lot of people that will say that life begins outside the womb. But David disagrees with that. Even scientists disagree with that if they're honest with you. For they will tell you that by the day 31 after conception, there is a heart that is beating. By day 40 after conception... Brain waves are waving. By the end of the first trimester, there are vocal cords. There 
are muscular structures that are in place. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that in the first few days and weeks, that little creature that is flipping and flopping in mama's embryonic fluid is praising the Lord for that person has a beating heart and a waving brain and vocal cords that can praise the Lord and little limbs and arms with muscles on them that can wave and praise God with everything that he or she's got because life begins not outside the womb, but life begins inside the womb the moment that God says, let there be life. Now this morning I realized that when I speak to a crowd of this size, I understand that one or more of you know the pain of abortion. Maybe you had an abortion because of pressure from a high school boyfriend. Maybe you had an abortion because mom and dad thought that was the only option. And that happened several years ago. And no amount of counseling in the abortion clinic can prepare you for the scars that you carry. And you know, it's been 18 years, and you realize that your son or your daughter would be graduating from high school this May, walking across the stage to receive a diploma, and you can only dream about all the things that he or she could be preparing for for college and beyond. This morning, if David teaches us anything, he teaches us that there is no sin too gross for grace. There is no sin that is too gross for grace. Our God knows you exhaustively and he loves you eternally our god is everywhere so you can't outrun him and you can't hide from him our god is omnipotent which means he is all powerful david concludes that third stanza and he says, when I awake i am still with you that is an interesting phrase You know that psalms are songs and poetry, and poetry is very symbolic. Some people believe that what David is talking about is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm still with you. So whether I'm uh, asleep at night or awake in the day, I am still with you. You're powerful enough to hold me. And certainly that could be the application of that passage. It could mean that the, that the meaning is it's when I'm awake spiritually or even when I'm dead spiritually, God is still protecting me and God is still powerful over me. And certainly that could be the case. But you know what I think David is driving at? I think David is talking about that morning of resurrection when we wake up. Because I think that even David believed in resurrection. And I think that when David writes this third stanza, he says God is omnipotent because he's powerful enough to protect us not only in the womb, but also through the tomb and beyond. So from the womb to the tomb, God in his omnipotence is able to protect us because he crafted us even when no one was watching. And even on that great getting up morning of resurrection, it it is God who will wake us up and we will still be in his presence. So this morning I wonder, how do you respond to a God like that? How do you respond to a God who's omniscient, who knows everything about everything? He knows everything about you, and yet he still loves you. 
How do you respond to a God who is omnipresent? All of God is everywhere. You can't outrun him. You can't hide from him. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to a God God who is omnipotent? He is as powerful as being able to hold you from the womb through the tomb. How do you respond? Well, David responds in the fourth stanza. In verses 19 to 24, David responds. And David's first words are, slay the wicked. That's odd. Kill your enemies. Because your enemies are my enemies. They misuse your name. I abhor those who stand against you. The word abhor is strong hatred. And you want to say, David, whoa, time out. Calm down, brother. I mean, you might expect him to say, evangelize the enemies. You might expect him to say, win the wicked. But he doesn't. He says, slay the wicked. (laughs) You say, why? Why are you saying that? When you get to the final two verses of the fourth stanza, it helps us to understand the entire fourth stanza. The last two verses, David once again says, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. You know what David is saying? David is saying the only way you can respond to this great, awesome God is you simply say to God, slay the wicked that is around me and within me. Slay the sin that surrounds me and the sin that is within me. He says, I want you to slay the sin that comes from my mind and my heart. Those are the two places where sin originates in your thoughts, and in your feelings. It's out of those thoughts and feelings that sin sprouts. So what does David say? David says, Lord, you are so holy. Lord, you are so sovereign. Lord, you are so omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Lord, you are so mighty and majestic and merciful and mighty. Oh, Lord, I need for you to slay the sin that is within me. And while you're at it, will you slay the sin that's around me? Because you are a holy God. David has a similar response as Isaiah. When Isaiah saw a holy God, he says, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm as good as dead. I'm a cooked goose. There's no way I can survive this. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the God Almighty. David responds in a similar way as Peter will respond. For when he sees Jesus, he says, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Whenever holiness comes in and meets unholiness, it's the cry of unholiness that says, we're not worthy to be in your presence. That's what the fourth stanza is driving at, where David says, slay the wicked that is around me and within me. I am just as wicked as they are. I am just as sinful as they are. I put on a good front, I talk a big game, but I am just as wicked and sinful as them. So test me and search me. If you see anything that's offensive, lead me into the way everlasting. See, I really think that David wanted to build the temple for God so that the sacrificial system could be housed intact and in place. Because David understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there is a descendant of David who fulfills the request of David. 
David said, slay the wicked that is within me. There is a descendant of David who fulfills the request of David. The descendant to which I refer is not Absalom. It is not Solomon. It is not even his adopted son, Mephibosheth. But the descendant of David to which I refer is the one who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of the virgin girl. The descendant of David to which I refer is the one who walked this sod 33 plus years and lived a perfect life. The descendant of David to which I refer is the one who was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. The descendant of David to which I refer is the one who knew no sin yet became sin for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The descendant of David to which I refer is none other than Jesus the Christ. For Jesus went to the cross to slay the sin that's within you and the sin that's around you. So the ancient hymn writer is exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Horatio Spafford knew what it was for his sin to be slain. For Horatio Spafford said in that infamous song, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Christian Stanfield is one who understands that his sin has been slain. For he says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus the Christ. What on earth are we doing? We are here so that we may know personally this amazing God. This God who is omniscient. He knows everything about you yet he still loves you eternally. We're here to know this God who is omnipresent. All of him is everywhere. You can't outrun him. You can't hide from him. We're here to know this God who is omnipotent. He is so powerful, he can protect you from the womb through the tomb. How do you respond to this God? You simply say, Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. Slay the wicked that is within me. Slay the sin of my mind and my heart. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I invite you to trust this God as your Lord. This morning, maybe you are a believer, but you're trying to run from God. You're trying to hide from Him. You're trying to keep something from him. 
And this morning he has revealed to you that he is the all-seeing God who sees everything and knows everything, yet he still loves you. And my friend, what he wants you to do is just simply to come and lay your sins, your concern, your cares at the trash heap of God called the altar of God. And here we just cast our cares upon the one who cares so much for us. Or maybe this morning you've been waiting for something in order to join this church. The waiting's over. Come on. Maybe you're here today and you and your family need to be part of this faith family. As God leads, won't you respond to this great, awesome, sovereign God? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Thank you for not leaving your identity to our speculation. You've clearly portrayed yourself in a place like Psalm 139. And you have called us to ask of you, slay our sin. Search us. Know our thoughts. Test our anxious heart and mind. If there's anything that's offensive in us, please get rid of it and lead us into the way everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.